read from Colossians chapter 1. So I'm just going to read a few verses as we start this series off this morning. I'm just going to read the first eight verses of Colossians chapter 1. This is what it says. Reading from the uh, New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. That's a good desire, isn't it? We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world, and it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard it and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. Great words. Great little words. There's a lot in those eight verses that we'll get to uh, pretty soon. Earlier this week, I was asked a rather personal question. Someone asked me, how old are you? That's a pretty personal question when someone asks that, isn't it? And, you know, you kind of wonder, how do you respond to that? And you might have, I wondered that if, when someone asks how old you are, you might have expected me to turn around and say, well, I'm 43. But I didn't do that. And that wasn't the response the question wanted. The person who was asking how old I was wasn't asking how old I was. You look confused. That's all right. I want you to be confused. If it helps, the person who asked me how old I was, as my beautiful, wonderful, curring, and long-suffering wife of 23 years, Steph. And Steph knows my age. And Steph does not have any problems with her memory. I can tell you that. Steph has no problems with her memory. And if it helps you out even further, Steph asked me this question when we were doing our weekly big shop. Some of you are laughing already. Maybe you've jumped way ahead of me and you know where this is going. And so we're on our weekly big shop and I found myself on a long and wide shopping aisle that was clear of all of the customers and clear of any other obstructions and I was driving the shopping trolley. Now, I'll be honest with you, the inner child in me can't resist that kind of temptation. And so I put one foot on the back of the trolley, and with the other trolley foot, I pushed off, and I cruised down the shopping aisle in style, in fleur, and it was glorious. I don't know, with the wind in my hair, I felt like an Olympic athlete. It was kind of like, for a moment, I almost, for a brief moment, I almost thought about being like Leonardo DiCaprio in the film Titanic, holding out my arms wide and shouting, I'm the king of the world, as I kind of went around this, right down this aisle, but, but I didn't want to look immature. And I didn't want to take my hands off the trolley because they are tricky to steer. They are really tricky to steer trolleys. And so after a good 40 feet at least, a personal best for me, I think, a personal best. I brought the trolley to a controlled stop. In case there's any driving instructors in here. A controlled stop with a nice sideways turn. And then I looked back up 
the aisle with a stupid grin on my face towards my loving, wonderful, caring, long-suffering wife of 23 years, Steph, and smiled in her direction. Now, I don't know what was I, was, I, don't know what I was expecting. I, I didn't, applause, maybe. That would have been nice. A musical number like in Greece after the car races and the girls start singing. That would have been nice. Maybe any kind of appreciation, but Steph was obviously not as impressed as I was. And so with raised eyebrows, she kind of looked at me and said, how old are you? (laughs) And you know she wasn't seeking information. If I'd given her my age and said 43, I don't think that would have helped me out of the situation. What Steph wanted my response to be was to reflect on my behavior in a public place in a supermarket as a man of 43 years old. And I'll be honest with you, this past week, I spent a lot of time reflecting on my actions. And I've realized, I have realized that if I wore less wind-resistant clothing, I probably would have made it a good further five feet. Uh, So next time I could do that, that's not what she wanted me, of course. But we understand that context makes all the difference, doesn't it? Situations make all the difference. The more you know about the when, where, why, and who, it helps you better understand what is being said, and it helps you understand how to apply it. If you get the when, why, who, and wrong, then you can mishear what's said, and you can give the wrong response to what is being said. So forgive me this morning, but as we start this series in Colossians, it's only proper that I think I give some background to this letter about the where, when, why, and who's of it, so we can better understand it, and then we can know how to apply it. And I won't say everything this morning. There'll be more to learn as we go on through this letter where appropriate in the coming weeks. And I want you to understand I'm not, I'm not being patronizing this morning, uh, but I do want to cover some basics. They will help us. So in the very first verse of this letter, we're told this, that this letter is from the Apostle Paul. He's writing with his brother Timothy. The letter is addressed to God's holy people in the city of Colossae. They're called Colossians because of that reason. And they're to, his people, they're to the people who are also his brothers and sisters in Christ. So who's Paul? Again, I'm teaching us to suck eggs, I know, but it's worth going through the egg-sucking process. So who's Paul? Well, we, must, we first meet Paul in Acts chapter 8. Very first verse of Acts chapter 8. He's there and he's witnessing the murder of the very first Christian to be killed, a guy called Stephen. And at the time, Paul is called Saul. It's not a different name. Paul, as contrary to popular opinion, he doesn't undergo a name change later on after he meets Christ. Paul is just a Roman or a Latinized way of saying his Hebrew name, Saul. Paul, Saul, whoever you want to call him, he's ethnically Jewish. But he's born in a city called Tarsus that was in a Roman-controlled province called Cilicia, now in modern-day Turkey. And so this gave him a dual nationality, a dual status, if you want to put it that way. He was both a Jew and a Roman citizen, which, if you know the rest of his story in the book of Acts, really comes in handy. He uses that to his advantage. Not only is Paul born Jewish, ethnically Jewish, He's also very committed to the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs. He was well trained in the scriptures. And as he describes himself in a number of places in in, in the Bible, he is zealous. He is zealous to honor God in everything he does. And zealous is a very loaded word. If you heard the word zealous and you're wondering that means fanatic, then that's probably not a bad way to understand it. And it's in his zeal for God that Paul starts hunting Christians because they're proclaiming that Jesus is 
the Messiah, or if you want the Greek version of Messiah, Christ. He is the Christ. Now the Messiah is supposed to be God's anointed deliverer of Israel. The Christians were declaring that in Jesus, the Messiah, God had now brought deliverance to his people from their enemies and from the powers that enslaved them, so they may be freed from what those enslaving forces were, to serve the Lord in freedom together and to live together as one reconciled people. And that was an insult to Paul. As a Jew, that was an insult. For starters, Jesus was crucified, which is a horribly accursed way to die by the Romans. So he doesn't quite get that. The Rome was still in power. His people were still colonized by Roman forces. So if this was a rescue mission from enemy powers, then this didn't look like how Paul had expected it, and it didn't match with how he understood the Scriptures. To be fair to Paul, Jesus' disciples didn't get it either. It took them another experience before it all kind of came together. Additionally, the Christians were going around, going around saying that God had now raised this Jesus from the dead, that he wasn't dead anymore. And the language about this Jesus and the language to Jesus, well, it kind of used words and it gave honor to Jesus in a way that was only reserved for God. To top it off, these first Christians were Jews and they should have known better. And so Paul, very zealous for God, he's happy to go around and blot out all this blasphemy and to put an end to this in his own people. And so he goes around about it in a very violent way, as he says himself in many times. And in doing so, on one particular journey, when he's out to go and cause some harm to some Christians, he encounters the risen Jesus. And it flips his world upside down and inside out. It shatters his perspective on life. It destroys everything he thinks he knows. He has to rethink everything he thought he knew about God, about God's purposes, about how he understood the Scriptures, all in the light of Jesus Christ and what God has done through Jesus. And it transforms Paul from being someone who goes around persecuting people in the name of God to be willing to lay his life down for people in the name of God to proclaim what God has done for all people in Jesus. That's quite a change, isn't it? That's quite a change. I know not many of us have had that radical a change, but that's quite a change. And he's eager. He's eager for people to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. And he's especially called to take this message to non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, because he understands that God's eternal purposes have always been to be to reconcile all people to himself and to each other. That's important. That God wants to reconcile people to himself and to each other. That's important, isn't it? Not just the first bit, but the second bit, too. And it's worth saying that Paul never does this alone. He's never a solo pilot. He's never a lone ranger. He's not just one guy with a big platform and a big ministry and a microphone. That's not his job. He does this constantly alongside others for others. In all of his letters, even in the books of Acts when you read about Paul, he's never on his own. He does it with people purposely because communal life is his mission and his goal, but it's also his practice. He practices what he preaches. So when he's with the Jews, he works with the Jews. When he's with the Gentiles, he's working with the Gentiles. And he's constantly trying to get Jews and Gentiles to be one people. It's a very short and simplified version of Paul's story. Very short and simplified. Now at the time of writing this letter, this letter we call the Colossians, written to Colossians, 
As we find in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is in jail. He's banged up, he's chained up, he's doing time because he's proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And there's a lot of debate over where he's imprisoned and depending on where he's imprisoned sets the date of when this letter was written, either from the early AD 50s to the early AD 60s. We don't know. What we do know is that while he's in prison, wherever he is, Paul receives a visit from a Colossian believer called Epaphras. We just met him in these opening verses. You read him, his word name again in chapter 4. And he's the guy who's most likely planted the church in Colossae. And it's him who shares with Paul what's happening with these Colossian believers. Now, Col- Colossae, sorry to bore you with some geography this morning. Colossae is in what we call, again, in today in modern Turkey. And it was in the valley of the river Lycus. There was a river with it. And there was two other big cities with it, a city called Laodicea. I've got a lot of tricky words to say this morning. I'll just let you know that. Laodicea and Hierapolis. And they're two big cities. And it was a very diverse place. If you think Berry's diverse, as you walk through its town centre, Colossae was even more diverse than that. So there's lots of different people from all different backgrounds and loads of different religions. And you don't need to know too much about Colossae this morning. We'll see more of it as we go on. But if you are going to read the rest of this letter, and I'd encourage you to do so, not just as we go through it weekly, but in your own time, then it might prove helpful to know that this valley was famous for two industries. The production of clothing and the dyeing, or the baptizo, if you want the Greek of it, in of cloth. And Paul draws from both those images and those industries as he writes this letter. And so after hearing the news of what's happening in Colossae, Paul decides to write to the believers there. He sends a letter. He doesn't just send this letter as we find out in chapter, in chapter 4 again, he sends a letter to the believers in Laodicea as well. But we don't have that letter, which is a shame. I'd like to know what that said. I don't know if you would as well. I read those little verses in the Bible and I think that would be nice. I would like to know what he said to them. We don't have that letter. Now it's worth saying there's no Royal Mail. There's no FedEx. There's no UPS in these days. There's no speedy means of travel. No high speed trains. No cars. Not many carriages. You have to be very, very rich if you wanted a carriage. There's no email. Just pointing out the obvious, I know. No email. No TikTok. Sorry, kids. But to be fair, most of us in this room grew up without TikTok, so we're all right. We came out all right. We came out all right. And there's a lot of danger on the roads. It's a very dangerous thing. And this letter is being hand-delivered. Paul sends this letter with a man called Tychicus. Really tricky to say, Tychicus. He would have had to walk for weeks, absolutely weeks, to deliver this letter and the other letter to these people. I mean, that's a lot, isn't it? And he's not just delivering this letter like your postman does, saying good morning and then walking back. He's spending time with these people when he gets there on behalf of Paul. Now, I want us to think about that for a minute. Think about that for a moment. Because that's some physical commitment to other people, isn't it? That's some physical commitment to other people, to send a letter back in his day. Paul, I need you to understand, is passionate that church life is not just some spiritual religious experience, but church life is a physical practice. He's not a big fan, and we'll explore this more as we come later on, he's not a big fan of impersonal faith. He's not a big fan of me and God religion. He's a huge believer in us and God faith. Does that make sense? We'll come back to that. Now, Tychicus isn't traveling alone. There's a second man 
going with him, as you'll find out later in this letter. Another guy who's actually from Colossae, he's actually a Colossian, a guy called Onesimus. And he is also carrying a letter, and he's carrying a letter to another Colossian believer called Philemon. And we do have that letter in the New Testament, and maybe in a couple of weeks we'll get to that situation and we'll look at that. And if we were to summarize this letter, this letter being sent to the Colossians, then we could say, we could put it this way, that Paul wants these believers, he wants us as believers as well, to know, to remember that Jesus Christ is everything we need. Jesus Christ is everything we need. He wants them to know that Jesus is all supreme and all sufficient. You don't need anything else. That's good news, isn't it? All we need is Christ. Now, you could mishear that. You could mishear that. Just like I could have misheard Steph on that shopping aisle and got in, got in a bit of bother if I did. But we could mishear that. We could misunderstand what Paul is saying when he's saying we, all we need is Christ. You could wrongly say that if all I need is Jesus, then I don't need to put fuel in my car. We're not that stupid, are we? I hope not. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's those times when I've been on fumes and I've been praying like crazy that I'll get to where I need to or a petrol station. Don't get me wrong. I've been in those situations. But we know we need to put fuel in our car. You don't turn up there and just to your car and say, I don't need petrol. I just need Jesus. You know, you understand there's a limit to that, don't you? You understand you need to put food in your stomach. Now, don't get me wrong, some of us may fast, some of us may not fast, some of us may have different reasons for not, I don't know. But you understand that we're human, we have bodies, I need chocolate. We know that, don't we? We know there's a limit to that language. You could also take it further, worse than that. You could wrongly hear that and say, if Jesus is all I need, then I also don't need other people. And I don't need other believers, and I don't need human companionship. And that is not what Paul is saying. It's not good for man to be alone. We need each other. And so when Paul is saying this, we have to ask, why is he saying it? Why does Paul want these believers to know that Christ is all sufficient and all supreme and Jesus is all you need? Well, sorry to bore you again this morning, but to piece some things together from this letter and to other early century texts that we know there seems to be other ideas drifting into the life of the church that have started to affect the church. And it's not rampant, like we find in like Paul's letter to Colossians, where he's got a lot of things to put right there. But it's certainly on the sidelines. It's certainly an encroaching threat. And we'll explore it a bit more in the, in the coming weeks. But there seems, to be, there seems to be whisperings of what later became known as Gnosticism creeping into the church. And this teaching was a blend, I suppose, a very very mixed bag, a blend of Greek philosophies and astrology and pagan cults, and mixed into that were practices borrowed from the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs that were twisted out of shape, and then that was served with a side order of angelic obsession and demonic obsessions and elemental obsessions, and then it was topped off with a sprinkle of Christian ideas. It was a right mixed bag, and it was hyper-spiritual, and one of its chief ideas was the idea of secret Knowledge, it's where the word Gnostic comes from. This idea of secret knowledge, that not everything, that not everything has been revealed. That if you really want to know the secret inner hidden mysteries of God, then you have to go for some sort of austere practices or some rites and rituals and aesthetic spiritual experiences to kind of gain or to purchase 
your way into higher and higher and higher and higher levels of knowledge. If you want an analogy, it's a terrible analogy because my pictures always are, imagine going to a concert or a festival. The last concert, big concert I went to was Bon Jovi in 2001, Huddersfield Stadium. Great concert, great concert, excellent concert. I was there 20, 22 long years ago. I was there, and I was in. I was in the concert. I was singing with everybody else. I was singing always, you give love a bad name, bad medicine, everything, you name it. I was singing it. And yet, even though I was in the concert, there was areas closed off to me. So, for example, right where I was, because I tried to get to the front of the crowd as much as I can, because at the time I was a keen Bon Jovi fan, I tried to press through, worm my way through, try and get close to the stage, and I couldn't get close to the stage. Because before I got to the stage, there was a fence. And there was another area in front of the stage where people had tables. Had a concert. What's that about? And it was crazy. And not only did they have tables, I couldn't get access to this area. But from the stage, John Bon Jovi would come out singing and dancing along a catwalk that stretched into this area where these tables were. And if you wanted to, you could touch his feet as he walked past as he was singing to you. I didn't want to touch John Bon Jovi's feet. Wrong. To, to touch his hand and for him to say, Tristan, good to see you, mate. That would have been great. That would have been excellent. But I didn't, want to, but I didn't have a ticket for that area. I couldn't get into that area. From where I was stood singing along to living on a prayer, I could see that some people also got a ticket to the side of the stage. There were some people stood on the stage inches away from Bon Jovi's guitarist, Richie Zambora. I didn't have a ticket for that. Probably best. Probably best not to trust a scouser like me next to Richie Sambora's guitars. I probably would have made off with one, and I probably would have been in big trouble. Not only that, but you could get a ticket if you wanted to. You could get a ticket that would allow you to meet the band afterwards. And you could sit down with John and Richie and Brian and Tico like your old mates chatting about good old times. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? That was great. But I didn't have a ticket for that. Oh. Thank you. It has broke my heart ever since. So I was in. I was in the concert, but I wasn't in. In. You get the idea. Of course, you can get to those areas, and you can get to the experiences those areas give you if you have access, and if you buy a ticket. And in a very crude analogy, that's what Gnosticism kind of claimed. It stratified this experience of God. It was saying that not everything was revealed in Jesus. That the way wasn't fully open to all. Jesus just got you into one part of the arena, but there was other stages of it. And so like the serpent whispering to Adam and Eve in the garden, there was these false teachers that were slivering in, and they were suggesting that actually there's something more God has hidden from you. There's something more you need in addition to Jesus in order to know the fullness of salvation, to order, in order to know the knowledge of God, in order to know God's will for your life. And that was a load of rubbish. Absolute hogwash. Absolute lies. And so throughout this letter, Paul, especially in the first three chapters, he shoots down these stupid ideas that Jesus hasn't revealed at all. And he takes this suggestive language these slivering whisperings, and he uses their language of secrets and hidden things and mysteries. 
and lack of fullness and invisible realities. And he throws it back at them constantly in the first three chapters of this letter. If you want me to paraphrase, he's saying, if you want to know the whole of God, the whole of God, the depth of who God is, the so-called hiddenness and the mystery of God, then Jesus has revealed it all. As Christians, that should be good news. Jesus has revealed it all. In Jesus is the fullness of God. Nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing moderated. In Jesus is all the treasure of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You are complete, he says in one of these passages, when your union with God. You don't need to add on anything extra. You don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need to do something more. Just keep trusting, keep plunging, keep putting your roots into Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? For those who are still awake. Even in these few introductory verses that we just read, Paul's pretty keen to emphasize that it's good news about Jesus. Well, it's spreading everywhere. That's a pretty big, broad access word, isn't it? It's everywhere to everyone. And it's transforming lives everywhere. In other words, it's universal. It's open to anybody anywhere, and they can access it. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter their nationality. It doesn't matter their social status. There's no subscription service. That's good, especially in our day and age. There's no subscription service, and you don't have to be part of some sort of spiritual elite to gain access to it. It's access all areas, to use the concert term. It's access all areas. God's not keeping anything hidden from anybody. That's the good news. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, full stop. If you want to know what God thinks about you, look at Jesus. If you want to approach God, then know that God in all his fullness with nothing absent has approached you in Jesus. If you want to know what God's purposes are and how they've been working out through history and how they've been working through the scriptures, then like Paul himself had to learn, look at it through Jesus, if you want to lead a truly spiritual life, then look at and learn from the embodied physical relating to one another lifestyle of Jesus Christ. There's nothing hidden. Everything is open. All you need is Christ. That's good, isn't it? All you need for salvation is Jesus. That's good news. Now wrongly, Again, we can, we can mishear Paul, and we can get him wrong, and we can think and respond in the wrong way. So we can wrongly hear Miss Paul and say there's no secret knowledge, and there is no secret knowledge. There are no hidden details. There are no secret knowledge. And, but we can wrongly think he's warning us against academics and theologians and teachers and people with intellect, people who study the scriptures and help us understand the context and the culture and all of that. And he's not. He's not saying that. Paul wants people to learn about Jesus Christ. He wants people to understand the scriptures. He wants people to grapple with what God has already accomplished and already revealed in Jesus to all people of all times, in the historical movements of Jesus, in the particularity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He's not saying there's nothing to learn. We all have something to learn. And I don't know about you, but I'm 2,000 years on from these events. I need, as a Westerner, 
2,000 years on in a totally different culture help in understanding how this book should be read and how it should be understood. Paul's keen on that. What he's not keen on is so-called Christian spirituality that is secret, often often self-propelled, often me-focused more than Christ-focused, and is often very private. And what I mean by that is that we often mistakenly think the Christian life is about spiritual experiences and revelations more than it is about following the Spirit's leading into expressing and embodying Jesus' life with one another to one another. See, there's many problems theologically with Gnostic ideas, and they still exist. They still whisper in, but they have practical issues practical repercussions, and we'll explore more as we go on in the weeks to come. But often, Gnostic ideas, even Christians who take up Gnostic ideas, well, you'll find, you find that often you'll meet people who, who claim to be spiritual, they claim to have a proximity to God, but they absolutely suck at ha- having a proximity to other people. Ever meet those people? They love God, but they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that's problematic. Now I'm not speaking of people who have experienced trauma, because that's understandable. I'm not speaking about people who have mental health issues and anxiety issues, who, who are, and I know that myself, who being with people is, 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 is like stepping, I don't know, climbing a mountain. I understand all of that. I'm speaking of our tendency, and I include myself here, to make it about me and Jesus. And as Paul explains it, as he often does in his letters, and he's not the only New Testament writer who does. And as he has understood it in his own call to serve people, God's plan is not that. It's for humanity. It's an us in Jesus thing, not a me and a Jesus thing. It means, I can't say I love Jesus, but I avoid his Christian family. That's challenging. Because... Christians are hard to love sometimes. We are, aren't we? It's challenging. I don't know, but I'd rather it be me and Jesus than us in Jesus. Uh, but the New Testament doesn't give me that loophole. Nowhere, anywhere, anywhere does God, Jesus, any disciples, any of the writers of the New Testament encourage a it's just me and you kid kind of faith. It's us in Christ. And it's telling in his introduction where Paul's focus goes. In verses 4 to 8, Paul gives thanks. He gives thanks for their faith. And he thanks them. He's thankful because the real fruit of their faith in Jesus, the real life the Spirit has led them into, is an embodied love for one another. And we'll see how that looks in chapter 3 as we go on. And Paul doesn't just teach this stuff. He's not just an empty guy who, who just wants a platform and just speaks and speaks and speaks. He puts into practice what he teaches. Even as he writes, he preaches and he practices this us in Jesus' life. And so when Paul writes to the Colossians, he doesn't write to them just as some distant people. He writes to them as brothers and sisters. Now we know when Paul says his brothers and sisters, we know they're not actually biologically his brothers and sisters, don't we? Otherwise, we'd have him questions about his mum and dad, and we'd, you know, we'd, that'd, be a, that'd be a Jeremy Kyle episode to watch, wouldn't it? We, you know, we, we, we know they're not his biological brothers and sisters. And yet the word he uses is, 
the biological word for brothers and sisters. He even introduces Timothy. He introduces Timothy as our brother, which we easily skip over. I understand it's easy to overlook, but it's telling because in lots of other New Testament writings, Paul introduces Timothy as his son. Now again, Timothy's not his son. He's not his biological son. Paul has nurtured Timothy in his faith, and he feels like he's got a father-like, son-like relationship with him. But when he introduces Timothy into this letter to the Colossians, he doesn't want to imply any sort of level difference or any sort of status difference or any sort of relationship difference between him and Timothy. They are brothers in Christ. At the end of verse 2, Paul says, May God, our Father, give you grace and peace. Our Father. Again, it's easy to skip over, but I need to know there's no uncles in this family. There's no aunties in this family. There's no grandparents or great-grandchildren or great-great-great-great-grandchildren. There's not some of us who are relationally closer to God than other people. There's not different levels with God's proximity. There's only two levels. We are all siblings at the same level with no favorites, and there's one father. And Paul, I, never, I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself like this, but Paul is on a level with us. Check that out. Paul is on par with us. Now again, it makes the same point I've said before, that we all have the same access. There's not extra levels, there's not extra stages. That Yeah, you're a child, but I'm a favorite child. There's not that kind of thing going on. But more than this, it makes the point that we are a family. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are. The church down the road is full of my brothers and sisters in Christ. The church in Kenya, because Shirley was sharing with us last week, is full of my brothers and sisters in Christ. The church a hundred years ago that is no longer here anymore and the people have passed on and gone back into glory, they are full of my brothers and sisters in Christ. The church that will be here in two generations, three generations, four generations, are full of my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. And this means that my identity as a follower of Jesus is intimately tied up with yours. I am called to be with you. And there's no getting out of that. Sorry. You're stuck with me. I'm stuck with you, but I think you got the worst side of the deal. But we're, we're together. So I cannot, I cannot, to quote another New Testament writer, John, I cannot claim to be spiritual. I cannot claim to have faith in Christ. I cannot claim to be religious. I don't have a problem with that word, and I don't have a problem with the spiritual word. I cannot claim any of that kind of stuff. I cannot claim to love and know God who I cannot see whilst being hostile and apathetic and distant from the brothers and sisters I can see. That's not what we're called to. That isn't part of God's purpose. See, for Paul, being in Christ, belonging to Christ, means belonging to each other. I don't mean in a possessive sense. Again, a family sense. And Paul, whenever he writes in the New Testament, he's striving. He's striving because he wants the church to understand they are a family 
And he wants them to understand what that looks like. He wants believers to know that Christianity is not a religious experience, and it's not a spiritual experience, although it is, it does have, of course, the Holy Spirit's involved in it. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not a spiritual experience. It's a new humanity. It's a communal thing. We are new creation. Not just in a personal sense, but in a communal sense as well. Or as Bono, the lead singer of U2, who I've also seen in concert, I didn't get to touch his feet either because there was a special stage. But as he said it, church is not a place, but it's a practice. It's not a religious experience. It's loving one another. Now this doesn't mean we can't be dysfunctional, because we often are. We can be. We're learning. We're growing. We're all in process. And yes, we all have different gifts, we have different roles, we're at different stages in our maturity and different aspects of our lives. And if you're like me, sometimes you'll find yourself having to reset those stages again and again and again and again. And sometimes even the easy lessons are hard to get in, and so we're all going through it. But none of us, none of us are relationally closer to God than any of our brothers and sisters. And none of us are an only child. That's the message of Colossians. None of us are relationally any closer to God than any of our brothers and sisters. And none of us are an only child. The love I have for God the Father is to be expressed in the love I have for his family and for his creation. And so here's a question for you before we start Colossians. I'm not saying before I preach. Before I start Colossians, something to think about in the weeks ahead. How do you personally measure your spiritual health? How do you measure the health of your faith? Is it in your spiritual experiences, how vibrant they are and how often they happen? Or is it in your spiritual disciplines, how good you are at prayer or reading the Bible? And they're good things, but is it in those things? Or is it in the health of our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ? And could it be that the third and final one is the one that sets the tone the other two. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because there is no other name. There is no other name but Jesus Christ. Lord God, we don't need the names of angels. We don't need to know the names of of demons, we don't need to know the names of elemental powers. It's the name of Jesus. It's you that gives life. It gives life so freely and so wonderfully. And so, Lord God, may we not turn away from your gift. May we not cut it off. May we not turn it away. May we not go running after other things. But may we seek to know you, as Paul writes in the Ephesians letter, Lord God, may we seek to know the height and the depth and the breadth and the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. May we seek to plunge our roots into you, Lord God. May we seek to explore the depth of the fullness that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And may we know that we're not called to do that alone. We're never called to walk alone in that, Lord God but we have a family that you've called us to be with. And so may we never, never, never take that family for granted. I know I have so often in my walk with you. I know there's plenty of times when I've decided to go it alone. 
many times when I think I'm better off without them. But actually, I know I'm not, Lord God. And so I thank you for this family here at Metro. I thank you for the family of the church in Berry, in the width of this town, Lord God. I thank you for the church nationally. I thank you for the body of Christ globally, Lord God. There's so much we can learn and enjoy together about you, Lord God. So may we celebrate your goodness together, sing your praises together, enjoy the fruit of your spirit together, exhibit your gifts together, gather around your scriptures together, worship and sing your praises and honor and glory that is due to your name together, Lord God. And may we love one another together, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.